Straw Hut Media. Today, commercials always have a target audience in mind. They're thinking about who they have the best chance of selling their product to, which is a common marketing tactic, but it's rooted in gender ideologies. Tutus are for little girls. Monster trucks are for boys. Makeup is for women. You get the idea. Today, we've made a lot of progress in terms of gender. Legos has released lines of toys using only primary colors to prove that anyone can buy their products, but it's a bit lopsided. Why aren't more products traditionally targeted for women being marketed for men? Today, we're joined by Dr. Megan Mass, who breaks down why commercials are driven by societal norms and heteronormativity. We gotta make girls into ladies, you know, men, you know, are the pursuers. These girls need to be virgins. That was extreme. So we have that need to really delineate the boys and the girls. We're also joined by Boy Smells co-founder, Matthew Herman, whose candle business celebrates those who challenge the gender binary. You know, it's like really about like embracing this kind of like spectrum of more feminine to more masculine values together in a fragrance because I think that really reflects the identity of people today, or at least the people I look up to and love and <laughs> identify with. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. So I am uh, Dr. Megan Moz, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm an assistant professor in human development and family studies at Michigan State University, and I research something called sexual socialization. Sexual socialization sounds intimidating, but it's actually the process of acquiring knowledge about sex and sexuality over time. And as you can imagine, that's highly tied to gender socialization and gender identity and, and dynamics around that. We start looking at people in terms of gender at a very young age, and it ties into how we try to differentiate everything in our lives. So around two-ish, three-ish, that's when we're really trying to put things in categories. These are plants, these are animals, this is food. Um, and then we create more complex categories. And toddlers and little kids love the boy-girl category. And then they start sort of applying it to everything. And so you could say that we're really learning about it there might even be evidence of learning about it earlier than that, but my, my understanding is it really kicks into high gear right around when we're a toddler. First, let's go through some vocabulary. Like, what is objectification theory? It's a theory that, at the very foundation of it, is this idea that we can treat other human beings like they're not human. So we do a lot of this through othering, so we can objectify people in another country. We don't think of them as humans, so it's okay that we're going to war with them and people are dying. And we, we take away somebody's humanity and it makes violence against them okay. It's a little bit easier for us to sort of digest. So, so, so that's basically objectification is taking a human and turning them into an object. We do this a lot with sexualization, so sexual objectification. 
would be sort of taking the humanity out of of somebody and turning them into a sexual object or something where sex happens to them. They're not a sexual subject who is participating with, you know, free will and pleasure and safety and is is approaching um, a sexual experience with their whole body. So we can objectify ourselves, we can objectify others, um, and perhaps the best um, examples of objectification and objectification theory we see in advertising, where um, people a lot of times will become, you know, inhuman objects, like a girl, you know, sexual woman will become the can of beer or will only be focused on her breasts and like an alcohol bottle in between them or what or what have you and where we're not really considering the human being as a whole your example of that advertising would have kind of two effects on someone who is attracted to that gender or that presentation of gender they would be very attracted. And then someone who wants to be perceived as attractive may also then idolize those traits and want to replicate them to make them feel better about themselves or, or that you know they are sexy or desired. And that would have some sort of a effect on gender as a whole, I would think. Oh, for sure. I mean, we, we objectify um, men, women, trans men, trans women, we're doing more objectification across the board in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation expression. But traditionally, in a lot of our media throughout the 40s, 50s, 90s, was really focused on the sexual objectification of women. Um, and, per, and what are assuming from the audience are heterosexual cisgendered women. And so... Um, we've kind of gotten to a point where it's sort of normative for us to see girls and women as these sexual sort of made up um, presenting as sexually receptive and submissive kind of objects. And we are more used to seeing men uh, who we assume are cisgendered heterosexual men as, you know, the cowboys and the riding the motorcycle and the, or the dad who has a belly, but, you know, it's okay because it's a dad bod. And, you know, we're used to more seeing more um, variation and more focus on what the the male in these advertisements or whether it's an image, a still image or a film, um, what they're doing rather than what they look like. And then that kind of leads in then to heteronormativity theory, because those constructs of, I guess you'd say gender, then influence the concept of the preferred like mode of sexual orientation. Is that right? Totally. So we do our, you know, here's what a girl and a female is. Here's what a boy male is. And so the preferred way is for girls and boys to be in their roles and then they can come together. And so we've and that is the heteronormativity where we just assume boys are marrying girls, girls like boys, boys like girls. And we've got this submissive female, virginal, sexually inexperienced, you know, girl meets 
this um, sexually experienced, maybe aggressive, older male, and we we like those sort of opposites, dichotomy kind of a thing going on, for sure. And so we tend to apply those standards um, and norms across the board, even with same-sex couples, you know, we will get the questions that are like, well, who's the man in this relationship? Or, you know, just assume that one partner and even even among, um, you know, even among gay and bisexual people themselves will say, um, I feel like I have to adhere to some sort of gender role that is opposite or different than my partner's, you know, gender identity or gender role. Like we can't play the same roles in a relationship. So heteronormative, that would be another example of heteronormativity, you know, occurring in, in gay spaces and spaces where heterosexual people don't even, you know, live. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's pervasive. So then the social norms theory would be essentially what you mentioned about that perception of like, this is how it is. Yeah. So we have social norms. They are culturally determined. And we learn that very quickly when we travel to other countries. And, you know, some, some, in some countries you don't shake hands and, you know, and other countries, you know, you kiss somebody on the lips, even, you know, even if they're a stranger, you know, those, that would be an idea of a social norm or a social norm around, you know, weddings, what happens at a wedding or what happens during a holiday. Um, and those social norms can be obvious. And then there's other social norms that are more nuanced um, and they are playing out in all the little things that we do. And we learn these norms usually through trial and error because we have friends who, so for example, right now I have a daughter in kindergarten and she's learning that her, this new friend she's making likes some of her clothes and doesn't like other, you know, her other clothes. So she's learning right now what the social norms for dress are in kindergarten via this girl she's trying to be friends with. So that's how they are socializing each other right now about gender through, through social norms. Through sexual socialization, we attain a knowledge of what gender is and the stereotypes that come with acquiring this information from either societal influences or media consumption, like the ads we see on TV. Your coffee, sir. Thanks, beautiful. You're welcome. How can such a pretty wife make such bad coffee? I heard that. A lot of times you will you'll hear advertisers say they're just giving the people what they want. Um, but I think it's fixed. So Mad Men, the show is fictional. There's lots of, you know, examples of advertising we get. So we can kind of see behind the scenes of advertising in, in, in different ways. It may be accurate. It may not be. But we know that there is still there is still somebody who comes up with an idea and it's based off of their own experiences and decides how do we convince somebody that they need to purchase this thing. Attention ladies, please. Right now at the end of aisle two, I've set out a brand new can't miss husband pleasing coffee. Folgers Coffee, mountain grown for richer flavor. They might not invent certain norms, 
but they will play off of a desire to adhere to certain norms. And so they might accelerate it a little bit. And so um, we've had in, you know, in modern society, certainly through like the Victorian era um, and in the US, we see a massive divergence in terms of heterosexual socialization. Megan said advertisements began to target key audiences as early as the 1950s, especially following the post-World War II baby boom. And that would make sense because we've got all of these babies. So the advertisers know like, hey, we've got more babies than we've had in like 200 years. So everybody's focused on babies right now. More babies meant more parents in the market for supplies for their little tots. But instead of targeting both parents, advertisers decided to focus their efforts on moms specifically the white middle-class housewives who had influence over the household's finances. So advertisers really honed in on these stay-at-home mom, this new, um, you know, um, what's it called? Market of, of buyers um, as the decision makers and the ones that could be really convinced that if you're going to be a good mom, you know, you're going to get these products for, for your kids. Previously, infant clothes were primarily white because they were easiest to clean. But when advertisers noticed a growing desire to differentiate the clothes, they jumped on it. And then now, if we're going to really capitalize on that, like you just said, we can get them to buy a whole new set of clothes, a whole new set of toys. Now we can even get you, there's even boy and girl car seats. Pink car seats and blue car seats. I mean, you could even do, they're doing it across the board so that there's just more crap to buy. And a lot more guilt, you know, and, and they use the guilt, like, because mom guilt is real. That is, that's innate. And and so using that, you know, advertisers can hone, hone in on that and get people to, to think they need to buy all this stuff for boys and then buy a bunch of new stuff for if they have a girl. This led to even more gender targeting, like in the toy industry. Girls were told to play with Barbie dolls, while boys were shown Legos and monster trucks and G.I. Joe. There's study after study after study that shows that the, the toys that we play with as kids matter in terms of the kinds of jobs we envision ourselves having or being able to attain. You know, kids that are given a different variety of toys can imagine, you know, boys are more likely to imagine themselves um, as caring, loving fathers in their future um, if they have baby dolls that they can play with. Girls are more likely to imagine themselves as being um, a scientist or an astronaut or an engineer if they have blocks and, and, and other types of engineering toys to play with. Megan says our feelings towards body image are also affected by these brands. You know, superheroes, if you look at like Batman in the 60s, he kind of had like a little bit of a belly and his arms were pretty thin. And now is he's like enormous, you know, huge shoulders and arms and this teeny tiny little waist and um, just explosive. And so this concept of being like this super powerful, strong, violent dude as like the epitome of masculinity um, is uh, that's inherently supporting and praising violence. Or, 
you know, being this tiny little submissive skinny Barbie, um, we see that associated with, you know, having these really um, extreme ideals about being thin and dieting and eating disorders and, and being obsessed with being thin even from a young age for, um, you know, some girls. In recent years, advertisers have stayed away from gender targeting and have tried to create non-gendered campaigns. Toy manufacturing company Mattel released a gender-neutral Barbie in 2019 with a variety of accessories, clothes, and hair options. The doll can be a boy, a girl, neither, or even both. It's an amazing step forward, but Megan says we still have a ways to go. Where we see real change is if we can have cisgendered heterosexual boys play with traditional Barbies, right? Because what we've done is we've tend to just take out any kind of gender expression. And we say like, okay, so basically what we're saying is being non-binary is cool. Like being gender neutral is cool. And yeah, that is important. That's much better than the binary of boy or girl. But we're still making femininity the bad, weaker, worse option, especially for boys, regardless of whether or not they identify as, you know, a trans girl or they are a cisgendered boy. Um, We have to make, I think, advertisements and it has to be socially acceptable for boys to experiment playing with dolls and dresses or being stay-at-home dads or doing the feminine things for there to be real, you know, real change in terms of gender equality. So not just like the erasure of gender, but the tolerance of gender and not just tolerance, but like excitement or support of gender expression in many different ways. When we come back, we'll meet Matthew Herman, the creator of Boy Smells, a brand that challenges the idea that men can't be feminine. Before the break, we spoke with Megan Mass, an assistant professor at Michigan State University. Megan explained why advertisers chose to target gender and the effects this had on our society. But even as corporations move away from gendered brand campaigns in favor of gender-neutral advertising, there's still a very important point that must be made. Men can be feminine too. I wanted to be able to claim that like feminine space for myself as someone, you know, as somebody who uses like he or they pronouns, like I just felt like, you know, my feminine energy makes me the best man that I can be. That's like what makes me the best version of myself. It does everything to do with my gender. And that's what I really relate to. So it was, you know, not selfish, but it like really just reflected kind of like how we wanted to like view ourselves and fit into the world. Meet Matthew Herman, fashion designer and co-founder of the candle company Boy Smells. I went to a school in United Kingdom called Central St. Martin's for fashion design. And I basically looked up where all kind of my heroes went, like Alexander McQueen and Phoebe Philo and Sal McCartney and, uh, you know, all of these kind of like famed designers all went to this one school. And I was really important for me if I was going to do fashion design that I go there. So um, I moved to London and I lived there for about six years. And I worked for a designer called Giles Deacon there. And then I moved uh, back to the United States and I worked for a few uh, high-end runway designers in New York City. 
Matthew then got a call from Nasty Gal, a Los Angeles-based retailer who specializes in clothing for young women. Founded by Sofia Amoruso, the company started out as an eBay store before becoming the successful retailer it is today. And that was kind of a whole moment. Uh, but it was great because I worked in a company that kind of demystified entrepreneurship uh, in a very real way. And a part of company culture was to have a side hustle. Matthew was dating his partner, David, and together they started throwing around ideas for a new product geared towards them. We had had some conversations early on, you know, in our relationship, just about how we didn't feel our, didn't see ourselves in a lot of products and we didn't see ourselves in a lot of like retail experiences. And at that time as a queer person, I think we were kind of going through like, you know, second coming of ages of sorts where we're really kind of like peeling away the onion and trying to see like, who would we have been? And if, you know, uh, our queerness had always been celebrated. They decided to focus on fragrance. Matthew enjoyed wearing floral scents that embraced his more feminine side. I think one thing that people don't think about is like there's like all this implicit sexism in fragrance, right? So like uh, men are supposed to smell like woods and musks because like musks are animalistic and wood is strong, you know? Uh, and women are supposed to smell like flowers or fruits because they're like delicate or sensitive or emotional and really like, you know, all human beings, regardless of gender, like have the ability to be assertive. They have the potential to tap into their emotions for, for that to like guide their intuitions. And really, we need our capabilities and we need our emotions to be working together and not be isolated from one another, no matter, you know, who you are and how you identify. But instead of marketing a genderless fragrance that is designed for, quote, everyone, Matthew and David wanted their business to communicate to people that it's okay to break societal norms. And all of my girlfriends in fashion were wearing like Tuscan leather by Tom Ford or like Santal 33 by Lalabo, which are these traditionally like super masculine scents. And so while I thought like this brand is like really like has like super queer origins and maybe it's just for queer people, I was seeing like all of these like cis straight women who like love to wear a chunky Rolex or like a boyfriend blazer, you know, like that, that they love boy smells because it was like permission for them too to reclaim like this other side of the, this power spectrum on the other, that was traditionally on the other side of the gender binary. So uh, creating boy smells and putting it in a pink box, we were really kind of like, you know, giving a sense of permission and teasing the gender binary and fragrance um, to really give like a sense of permission that like you can like any smell you want. When we first started, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, you know, two people from fashion design going into fragrance, we already have like, you know, a total like feeling of like this imposter syndrome right like going into a field that like you know you have no business going into or, or that's how you feel um so we were already like a little like trepidatious just about like is this gonna work like do we even know what we're doing david and matthew were attending trade shows to try and convince stores to house their products it was there they noticed their products were not understood by all generations for the first couple of years you're like oh you either get it or you don't get it Regardless of the pushback, they continued to grow their brand, and eventually they were adopted by a few premium fashion retailers like Nordstrom and Barney's. 
Boy Smells was evolving from an indie startup to an internationally recognized, award-winning brand. And they did it by cornering a new generation of gender-neutral consumers while championing pro-gender multiplicity. Genderful uses your gender or how you've decided to express your gender, not based on your gender assigned at birth, but like it really uses gender as a point of like growth, self-reflection. And like at this point, like how you express your gender is up to you. And like it's, there is no protocol for it anymore. So gender fullness is a celebration of all different types of expression. And like, that's really when the brand took off, you know, like once we like, really embraced the brand identity and like we're speaking externally about it more is when we had our biggest success. When it comes to the branding of their product, Matthew says they stay away from those marketing ploys based on heteronormativity. You look at traditional fine fragrance ads and it's like, I don't know, you like spray this Dolce & Gabbana fragrance, all of a sudden you're like having sex on a rock in a ball for you with some like model or something, you know? Um, and I, what I love is I feel like uh, fragrance beauty is really shifting more towards like, you know, showing the tr your true beauty and letting that radiate versus, hey, I'm going to put on this like face of makeup so I can attract someone and like disguise myself as being like, prettier than I actually am. Instead, he says their products are all about the relationship people have with themselves. Like you should be able to like look in the mirror every day and like be like, that's my ideal of beauty. And the only reason that we don't feel that is because we've been taught to by marketing that there are these other ideals of beauty that like you don't fit into and that you need to buy these products so that you can fit into that box. And I think it's like, queer individuals like we like recognize that every day right like we've all been like micro editing our personalities like you know from childhood to like fit into other people's boxes or other people's expectations the business began with candles being sold in a pink box but has quickly grown into fragrances an underwear line called unmentionables and an upcoming toothpaste line each of these moments in your day from brushing your teeth to putting on your deodorant to spraying fragrance on your body to lighting the candle next to your bed if those can all be like not throwaway moments but like identity affirming moments like that could be super powerful boy smells is just one example of a genderful company creating products that go beyond the gender binary Megan says the backlash against gendered advertisements has been going on since the 70s and 80s and continues to grow today. I think there is some pushback because we see the emergence of um, independent, you know, brands making, like there's a clothing company called Primary um, that's trying to make clothes that aren't marketed based on gender. We're seeing some, some of that, like even the Mattel gender neutral Barbie. Um, that I think we are seeing some of that. So I think it absolutely can be an ebb and a flow and we can pull back on this stuff more because there is a market and, and here's where advertising is great and market research is great. There is a market for this stuff. There's millions of parents who do not want the be nice, you know, daddy's little princess shirts and I'm a tough monster, you know, dinosaur driving them tractor thing for their like 
there's a lot of people who do not want that shit at all and who are willing to pay money to have other options. So, um, and, and market research tells us that. So, um, absolutely. I think we can, can pull back, maybe not completely, but, um, definitely grow the, the space of in-between larger. For Matthew, he hopes to contribute to this growing space in between the binaries by creating new genderful products. Our genderful values can really tap into almost any product. So I think when we look at the medicine cabinet and like, you know, things in the shower, uh, things that you use every day, um, we really want to bring that genderful perspective um, to the rest of the bathroom because um, I don't know about you, but like as a kid, I think I really really like a lot of, you know, gender expectations were reinforced in the bathroom experience, whether that be like separate gender bathrooms or like the products that are in there, like, you know, all of that is like, I remember like looking at like the vanity and like my dad's stuff was just so different than my mom's stuff, you know, and like wanting to like dip into like perfume or like, you know, but also like things on, you know, the other side. I think that um, this genderful perspective is like still very much missing from the rest of the bathroom space and we're really excited to explore other mediums by which we can, you know, express these values for our customer. For the holiday season, you can check out Boy Smell's holiday collection of candles, as well as their brand new fine fragrances line and their recently restocked collaboration with Casey Musgraves. Just go to boysmells.com. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Then follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pride, and tune in weekly for new episodes. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and subscribe for more stories from amazing queer people. If you'd like to connect with me, you can follow me everywhere at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, Ryan Tillotson, Caitlin McDaniel, and Brandon Marlowe. Edited by Silvana Alcala and Daniel Ferreira. Sound mixing by Silvana Alcala. Is there part of you, the scientific part, that's like, let's watch this play out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. Where other moms so, would be like, the dress is fine. I know, exactly. She's and I'm wrong. like, I'm like, okay, so how, so tell me more about this conversation. Like, <laughs> she's like, what, she, like, she didn't like it. Yeah. Like, what how do you it know? About it? Yeah. But how do you know she doesn't like it? Is she telling you she doesn't like it? Or, you know, does she like this other thing better? And so uh, it's fascinating. Yeah.